Mark chapter 11. Here's what's, here's what's amazing. From Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 11, we have approximately, it, it, it caps about three and a half years. It doesn't seem like it. But, that, but that's Mark. Mark's style is he picked very selected uh, events and moved rapidly through G, the, the ministry of Jesus. From Mark 11 to Mark 16, it's going to be seven days. Eight, perhaps. Seven days. So, one through ten was three and a half years. Eleven through sixteen is going to be seven days. In fact, our text this morning, 11, chapter 11, verses 1 through 25, is going to be three of those days. Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. So, um, everything is, 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 at the end here is, is extremely compressed into the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, but before we get into the text, I want us to, re- to, to return to a question that I asked at the very beginning uh, of this uh, series on the Gospel of Mark, and that was, how do you view Jesus? And, and it seems to me, in, in, in my experience, it seems as though people kind of view Jesus as kind of a Mahatma Gandhi figure. You know, kind of this, you know, uh, you know flowers and kind of this guru that kind of roamed the countryside preaching love and... And, and well, he did preach love, but, but the, the, what Mark and what the gospel writers reveal to us about Jesus is far from that picture. In fact, our text today will reveal really a side of Jesus that many are not even aware of. And probably in, in, in men never really seen before. But it's important for us to understand the full person of Jesus. Yes, he was about love and he was humble and he was meek. And he was forgiving. Um, but we're going to see another side of Jesus today. Up until this point, he has concealed his identity time and time again. If you remember when he healed somebody, he said, you know, don't tell anybody who did it. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Now the gloves come off. Uh, and he will uh, very openly and very boldly reveal his identity. He know he's no longer going to conceal his identity, the time has come. For the most part, his ministry has been solely in the north, uh, away from Jerusalem, and now we see him arriving in Jerusalem. The last several sermons we've seen him on his way to Jerusalem, and now he finally arrives there. And, 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 and in terms of Mark, this is the first indication that Mark has given us that Jesus even, has even been in Jerusalem. Um, so it's, it's very important. Mark chapter 11, um, I, want us to, I want us to deal a little bit with structure first, uh, so, so that you kind of know where we're going on this. Um, there's, really, there's really two things that Jesus is going to deal with in verses 1 through 25. The first one is the temple, and the other one is a fig tree. <laughs> so that's really what this is about. It's about the temple and a fig tree. Now, remember a long time ago, I talked about what I call a Markin sandwich, where he will take a story, he'll start a story and stop it, and then have an intervening story and then continue it. So, you know, you have two ends that that go together with material in between. Well, here, he has two sandwiches combined in one. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to go from temple to fig tree, from temple to fig tree. Uh, and, 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 and in so doing, we will see 
in fact, uh, the, the, the dramatic change, not only in Jesus' identity, in, in, in terms of who, who he reveals himself as, but in terms of his ministry as well. Two Mark and sandwiches we're going to have and we're going to see today. The first one is the, the first part of the sandwiches dealing with the temple. And he comes to the temple. Verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went, really the sense is, back out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem and where's the first place he goes? To the temple. But I want you to notice how he came. Um, we, we have this, this account uh, regarding this, this donkey. Uh, it says colt, but it, it was a donkey. And um, strange account. Jesus says, I want you to go in and you're going to find, tells them exactly where to go, where to find uh, this colt. Uh, and um, and if so anyone asks you what you what you're doing with it, just tell them that I need it, and they'll let it go. And, and it's fascinating to me uh, the, the the amount of ink that has been spilled trying to explain this. Uh, some say, well, he made Jesus made prior arrangements. Though so the question is, when did Jesus make prior arrangements? How did he make prior arrangements? Yeah, there maybe yeah maybe he texted them and, and since. Um, other others say that there was, in fact, there was a, a thing. I, I, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Angaria, that, that 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 there was a uh, there was kind of a an understood uh, protocol that if a an important person needed to uh, conscript uh, your animal, uh, that they could do that. T- to me, it it, it really is uh, um, it really is irrelevant to me. Because really what is going on here is, is Jesus is coming out and he's finally revealing himself for who he really is. Why, why was this important for him to get a colt, get a donkey to enter into Jerusalem? Keep your marker here and turn to Zechariah 9.9. 9. Zechariah is near the end of your Old Testament. What I recommend do is, is go to Matthew, go, go back one book to Malachi... And then go one back, one more book. And then you're in Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. What What was the prediction? What was the prophecy of Messiah? That he would... Uh, that he would be humble, that he's come mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This wasn't some random decision that Jesus was making. This, in fact, was a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies about Messiah. This is not a subtle message. Jesus is not sending a, 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 a hidden message. This is very clear, very open, and very bold. And so as he comes into Jerusalem, back in Mark chapter 11, verse 8, well, verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw cloaks on it and he sat on it. We, we see this in 2 Kings. This was a common practice for when a king would, 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 would be in a processional through the town is they would throw garments on top of the donkey to, to form a kind of symbolic saddle. But this was something that they did for royalty. They would have understood this. Jerusalem would have understood this, the significance and the symbolism of this. This is something that kings did. This is something that royalty did. And he came into town, and what happened? Verses 9 and 10. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna means, technically means the Lord saves. But by this time, it was, just, it was just a general word of praise. So we don't want to make a lot, a lot out of this word, other than it was just it become a, a, a word of praise. Praise, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what would you anticipate? If, if, if the people give Jesus this kind of reception, what would you anticipate? I would anticipate... Reception. At least there's an initial reception. But as we're going to see in a matter of days, this very crowd who spread garments out in front of him would be saying, crucify him. All things are not what they appear. All the glitters is not gold. The, the response certainly was, was favorable but superficial. As is, as is the case with a lot of people with Jesus. Their response, initial response, is favorable, but it is merely superficial. In verse 11, we see that he finally enters the temple. And this is probably uh, the temple complex. This probably would have been what is called the court of Gentiles. This would have been the outer court. And as it was already late, he left. Now, Matthew takes the events that we're going to look at next and puts it during this time. Mark separates it out, and he separates it out for a purpose, because he's forming a sandwich. For a purpose. So Jesus arrives, but he doesn't just come. He comes as king. And again, behold your king. Finally, the veil is removed. His bold proclamation of his identity, the Messiah has come. And in fact, the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord. That's number one. That's temple number one. He comes. He arrives. He, He scopes out the temple. And as it is late, he goes back to Bethany, probably with Lazarus, probably staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
That was Sunday. Monday, fig tree number one, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, again, which would have been Monday, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, the fig tree, may no one ever eat from you, eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, what in the world is going on here? Uh, first of all, in, it said that he was hungry, but it's interesting that, again, that, that what he's going to do with this fig tree is, is well, what we call a prophetic sign act. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So although it said he was hungry, really he knew ahead of time that he was going to use this as a prophetic sign act that really, when it comes down to it, both everything is about the temple at this point. Uh, he says he, he, he saw that it had leaves on it, but what? But no figs. I, 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 I couldn't contract, well, if it had leaves... But it wasn't supposed to have figs. And then I, I, I did some study. I did some fig research. Um, a, a fig tree would leaf first. And the, the, this is a, a phrase describing the time when, when the, the fig tree apparently produces small edible buds. So it leaves, and then there's small edible buds. The edible buds fall off. And then, and then the fig grows after the edible buds. So they knew that, that when it leafed, um, it, especially early, there would be no figs, but there would be edible buds that, that, they would, that they would take and they would eat. And in fact, if no buds appeared, if, if, if a fig tree leafed and, and had no buds, uh, then it wasn't going to produce fruit that season. And, and, and that's not uncommon to us, is it? Like crab apple trees, sometimes... Crab apple trees produce crab apples, and other seasons they don't. And so that, that's the case here. He, he, they went to this tree. He was not surprised by this. He, he knew all along he was going to use this as a prophetic sign. Act. So what is going on here is, is he went and he saw that there were no buds. And look at his response. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Is this really about a fig tree? No. He pronounces a curse. They had, they had just left Bethany and they no doubt already had had breakfast. Or even if they hadn't, Jesus wasn't really looking for a meal, although he was this, this hungry. This was a prophetic sign act. May no one eat fruit from you again. What's a prophetic sign act? This was common in the Old Testament. Those of you that on Wednesday nights when we went through Ezekiel should know exactly what I'm talking about here. It's when a, a prophet would act out or use a, an object lesson to, um, to convey a message. In, in the case of Ezekiel, the poor guy spent his entire ministry doing prophetic sign acts, laying on his right side, then laying on his left side, cutting off uh, all his hair, a third of his hair got burned, a third of his hair did this. Third. Uh, it, this was very common for Old Testament prophecies. This is really not about a fig tree. 
This is really about the temple. And not even really about the temple, but what the temple represented. What did the temple represent? Old covenant. The old covenant. And it represented Israel. And what does he say? It's not about the literal fig tree. It wasn't a fit of anger. It wasn't because he was surprised that it had no fruit. But it was a solemn, prophetic word that was pronounced for the benefit of his disciples. In fact, chapter 11, verses 1 through 25 are going to be crucial context for understanding chapter 13. He curses this fig tree. May you never eat, may you never produce fruit from you again. And and, and the text says, and the disciples heard it. That's important. They heard him say this. So that was number two. That was fig tree number one. Now we go back to the temple. This Again, this sandwich. Look, Look with me at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it, is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for, for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. I want you to, a little sanctified speculation here, verse 17. When Jesus said, is it, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of robbers? How did he say that? Did he, did he sit and cross his legs? Mm, you know, guys, mm, is it not written, my, my house shall be called a house of prayer? But, but guys, you've made a den of robbers. Is that how you imagined he said it? <laughs> we, we get an idea of how he said it because what did he do? He, he overturned tables. Now, it's interesting. Matthew, this, this, is, this is the fun part. Matthew talks about when Jesus came in that everyone was, Hosanna. You, you, again, Matthew puts it earlier. The first time, Mark separates it for a purpose. We're going to see that. But he goes into the temple complex. This would have been the court of the Gentiles right here. And, and Matthew talks about that children were there praising him, Hosanna. Kids were praising him. So can you imagine being a Pharisee? And Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And he starts turning over the money chain. And the junior hires are going, Hosanna! The middle schoolers are going, Hosanna! Hosanna! Yeah! And he's turning over. Okay, I did some, I did some math. Alright? The court of Gentiles... I know Tom's going, oh boy, here we go. The court of the Gentiles, from all that I gathered, was 750 feet by 750 feet. So I, I understand that to get square footage, you multiply length times width, right? So that comes, that comes out to 562,500 square feet. The court of the Gentiles. This would have been the, the initial place when you, when you came through the wall, when you came through the gate into, into the temple complex, 
The first outer courts is the temp- is the court of Gentiles, and this is where the, this is where the Gentiles were allowed to come. And as we see, this is this is where God designed. Think about the beauty of this. We're going to see in a minute. This is what God designed for the Gentiles to come to know Him, and it was the biggest part of the temple complex. So, anybody know how many square feet are in an acre? Close, Scott. 43,560. So what I did was I divided 562,500 by 43,560. You know what I came up with? 12.9 acres. 12.9. And Jesus was going through this place, overturning tables and chasing people out. And he was saying, how dare you? My house shall be called a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. As an an aside, I'm always fascinated by the fact that Congress actually has a chaplain. And I I guess you could say that how how dare he make a den of robbers a house of prayer. Anyway, um, this was the place where Gentiles were to approach God. But instead, what do we see that's going on here? There are money changers. Now, what, what do, he's turning over the table of money changers. Who are these money changers? Well, people would, people would come to Jerusalem, and this is, this is for the Passover, is they'd have to bring temple tithes and temple taxes, and, and they'd bring all their coins. Well, most of the coins were, were pagan coins, and often would have the inscriptions of, of Nero or uh, the, the Caesar, and, and these coins were not allowed in the temple. You had to have temple currency. So they, had, they, they set up tables so that you could exchange currency. So you could take your, your Greek drachmas, you know, and exchange it for temple, for temple money. The problem is, is the exchange rate was exorbitant and they were fleecing people. So they gave them a dollar, uh, a drachma, a dollar drachma, and they'd only give them 50 cents or 25 cents or 10 cents in terms of temple coinage. So they, they, were, they were fleecing pilgrims that were, that were coming to the temple. It's interesting. It also says about doves. Look with me again. It says, uh, he overturned the tables of the money changers. So these are the people that were fleecing in terms of the exchange of currency and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Um, the, the Old Testament, what was, what was supposed to be sacrificed were, an, were, were large animals, sheep, bulls. But most poor people couldn't afford that. And, and, and many of them were coming from long distances. It's very difficult to, to bring animals long distances. So what they would do is they would, and by the way, the Old Testament did provide for them, that, that for those who were poor, they could, they, could sac, they could sacrifice pigeons and birds. So what they did, they set up shop in the court of Gentiles, and again, at a very exorbitant price, selling poor people, taking advantage of poor people, selling them their, these pigeons and, and, these, and these birds. I, I remember when I, um, I did a mission trip years and years ago to a friend that was in the Philippines. And, and um, one, of the, one of the missionaries was in Ago'o. And, and Ago'o, the Philippines, outside Ago'o, was, was one of the famous Marian apparitions. You know, when Mary appears? And she appeared in a guava tree. So, you know, it was like a three-mile hike back into the jungle to find this guava tree. And everything is a, it, it was a concrete path. 
with handrails. And when you got to the actual guava tree site, there were historical markers, and this is where Mary was. And, and uh, Rick Cleveland, the, the missionary, was explaining to me that, um, uh, that when pilgrims were coming to this Marian apparition, the, the, the Catholic Church was selling water. Because it's out in the middle. It's literally out in the middle of nowhere. It's hot, and it's humid. And they were selling water at exorbitant prices. Um, it, it, that's the same kind of thing that was going on here. These were poor people, and, and they were fleecing them, was selling them these birds at, at high, high, high rates. And Jesus is so. So I want you to get this picture. Uh, by the way, it says people are coming and going. That, that the court of Gentiles has become a, a place of commerce. People are, are. It's a shortcut rather than going around. You know, just let's cut through the court of Gentiles. And what does Jesus say again? He said, "You know what? How dare you?" How dare you turn the place that God arranged, that God designed for the Gentiles to come to know me, and you're using it not just as a marketplace, but as a marketplace to fleece his people. It's interesting, if you turn to Malachi Malachi chapter 3, again, even more easy to find. Matthew, a couple of blank pages. Malachi 3. Again, a prophecy of the messenger of the Lord. and He said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi. And He will refine them like gold and silver. You see, see, the, the, the purpose of Messiah coming to the temple was, in fact, He is like a refiner's fire. He will come suddenly... And he comes with judgment. Was Jesus angry? Yeah, he was. Wednesday night we're talking in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter four about in, in, be angry but do not sin. It, it is possible to be angry for the right reasons, the right way, and not sin. Um. Matthew, um, if you turn to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew gives us even more details. Uh, I want you to get a glimpse of Jesus. The Jesus, the meek and mild Jesus. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he comes, becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? 
And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You've ought to to done those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29. Verse 30, you you say if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Exactly what they did. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What is this generation? The people he was talking to. He's just been talking to them. You brood of vipers and all these things you've done. All these things will come upon you. If they were sitting there and he said, all these things are going to happen to this generation, they say, well, it's not us. It's the generation who sees those things. We're safe. The die is cast. This is going to be crucial to understand chapter 13. Jesus was angry. He was calling them broods of vipers, hypocrites, blind guides, saying they're going to burn in hell. That's what, in, uh, in, when I was in Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church, that's what we call hard preaching. That's hard preaching right there. You're going to burn in hell. And when you make a proselyte, you make them twice the son of hell as you are. How to win friends and influence people. And in fact, Mark tells us that, 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 that they had enough. And in fact, they sought a way to destroy him. But they couldn't just come out and do it. They couldn't do it openly uh, because the people, the, the, the people revered him. Fig tree number two. Look at me at verse 20. By the way, they sought a way to destroy him. They feared him because all the crowd was astonished. And, they, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Presumably, they went back to Bethany. Verse 20. As they pass by in the morning. So now this is Tuesday. All that happened on Monday. Now this is Tuesday. As they pass by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
And truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Verse 20 tells us that they, on their way back, they, they go pie this same fig tree. And, and, and verse 20 says, the fig tree withered. It could either be to its roots or withered from its roots up. Why is this significant? It had rotten roots. In other words, Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on this fig tree was not temporary. It wasn't just this season, you're not going to produce any figs. But what in fact does verse 20 tell us? It was never again. It was dead. It had dried up from the roots. There was no hope for this fig tree to ever produce fruits again, fruit fruit again. It wasn't temporary. <coughs> Excuse me. It wasn't just for a season. This was permanent. They passed by and the fig tree withered away from its roots or to its roots. And Peter remembered what Jesus said. He said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And then Jesus says, have faith in God. Doesn't that sound... That's odd. Isn't that odd? Response. Here's what I think Peter was saying. Peter was in a sense saying, how, can, how did that happen? How did this happen? And Jesus launches in by saying, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up, thrown in the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. Someone please tell me what this says. In your own words. Someone, anybody, any volunteers? Not what does it mean, what does it say? Tom? If you believe, your prayer will be answered. If you believe, your prayer will be answered. Isn't it, isn't it what it says? Yes. Anyone who says to this mountain, and probably he's referring to the Mount of Olives, but says to this mountain, be taken up, thrown in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, will be done for him. Is this, is this really about a mountain? No. This is obviously, this is a, this is a figure of speech. I mean, we use it in English too. He had, he had the faith that could do what? Move mountains. He was, so, he was so determined that he was going to move mountains. So, so this is a figure of speech. He's talking about things that appear to be impossible. But again, he says, may you never have fruit again. See, a full restoration of a physical temple is no longer the goal of redemptive history. If this is, and this very much, is targeted to the temple, and he says, never again will you ever bear fruit. The shift now is from a temple mindset and and a full restoration of a physical temple is no longer the goal of redemptive history. In fact, 
Paul is going to teach us what? That the temple is us. Have faith in God. A fundamental shift is going to take place from the temple, the temple being the center of worship, the temple being the center of redemptive history, to now it's going to shift to something else, namely to God himself through his people. Have faith in God. These are very difficult verses. These, the, these are verses that the, the name and claim it people make hay out of. If you proclaim it and you believe it, you're going to get it. Very difficult verses. How, how, do we, how, how are we to handle Mark 11, 23, and 24? Again, I try to approach it this way. First of all, I don't want to make them say more than what they promise. Uh, someone gets sick and we, and we pray in faith and we don't doubt that God's going to heal them. At some point, everybody... I'm not, I'm not revealing anything. Like you, you know the re- latest research, one out of every one person dies. I mean, at some point, you're going to die. People are going to pray for you and it ain't going to work. You're going to die. So, I, I, um, how many of you have prayed for something? Maybe... In faith, you believe in faith and have not doubted, but didn't get it. It seems like you know. I don't want to make. We cannot make these verses say more, or we don't want to make these promise. We don't want to make verses promise more than what they promise. On the other hand, we don't want to make these verses promise less either. How do we take these verses? Sometimes God says no, regardless of my faith. Seems like it seems like it contradicts what this is saying. I want you to notice also there is no demanding or declaring. Boy, this is really this is this is sweeping through the evangelical church. This whole issue of declaration. I, I declare that the power of Satan's broken over you. I uh, there is no there's no demanding, there's no declaration. There's it's prayer. So we don't want to we don't want to make more, say these promise more than what they do. On the other hand, again, I don't want to say they promise less. Anybody know James 5.16 offhand? Dan, I know Dan Light does. The prayer, the the effectual firm of righteous man availeth much. Other translations talk about the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. How about Matthew seventeen fourteen? This was a parallel account we saw in Mark. Remember, the disciples couldn't uh, cast that demon out of that that boy, that man. Seventeen fourteen. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. He suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and off into water. And I brought him to your disciples. They could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out, and the boy was healed. And the disciples came to Jesus and said, Why could we not cast it out? And what does he say? Because of your little faith. How many times have we seen in the book of Mark when Jesus said to a person, 
Your faith has made you well. It's every time. So, on the one hand, sometimes I, it seems like I have faith and it doesn't happen. But, on the other hand, the Gospels are full, full of accounts where faith and belief was powerful and effective. Blind Bartimaeus, here's the question. Now, the text doesn't answer it, so I'm not going to try to answer it myself. When he cried out to the Lord and, 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 and he had faith and Jesus healed him, if he had never cried out, if he had ne- would Jesus have still healed him? I, I came across, I, it was providential, I, I came across this this week. I was, I'm cleaning out one of our bedrooms, getting ready for the kids to come, and I, and I, I use it kind of as an office. So I, I found this, and this was from 2009, so 11 years ago. So I was just kind of going through it, and, uh, and, and I, a lot of my study notes and sermon notes are in here, and this was on 1 John 5, 14, and 15. And without going into that, page 77, I say, final note, what about unanswered prayer? And and I say about these verses, what I said about 1 John 5 is what I say now to Mark 11, 23-24. To date, I I have yet to hear or read of any kind of unified explanation or theory of how to reconcile texts like ours with unanswered prayer. My question is, I have no clue really what these verses are promising. Not, as I say here, not any kind of unified explanation or theory. However, I say, we, I, we cannot allow this mystery or this paradox to keep us from praying and believing that God will answer our prayers. Can we say this much? Even though we may not be able to exactly reconcile or come up with some kind of unified explanation or theory between unanswered prayer and what, what Mark 11, 23 to 24 seems to be saying to us, can we at least say faith and belief are crucial to answered prayer? And, and, and we have to resist saying, well, what about this? And what about that? What about this? The Bible doesn't tell us all the whatabouts. But as I read, as I've gone through the God, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, one thing of many things that should be very clear to us now is that faith and belief and not doubting somehow gets God's attention. It's anthropomorph, really gets God's attention, and He responds to faith and belief. I, I've often said this. There's a there's a vast chasm between where uh, I can only speak to myself, where I am, and where these Faith healers are. There's a huge, there's a huge, there's a lot of ground in between us that I can move in terms of believing in and having faith in what I what I'm praying for. And faith and prayer are virtually interchangeable. So I'm, as you know, I've been kind of pushing us and pushing myself to say, you know what? I'm tired of faithless prayers. I'm tired of going through the motion. I want to say I'm going to have faith in God and I'm going to believe. And not doubt that God is going to answer my prayer. And someone said, "What if He doesn't?" I, I don't. I, I don't. I'm not even going to think about that. But sadly, what happens is 
the mystery of these verses really take away from what the overall message is here. Really, the, the context of all of this is not about prayer. It's really not about prayer. It's about who Jesus is. Let's, let's not forget the focus. Jesus is King. Jesus is Messiah. And again, how do you view Jesus? The more accurate question is, how is Jesus presented to us? Three things. Clearly and openly, he, he announced his deity. Two, he boldly confronted the evildoers and cleansed the temple. And he pronounced judgment. He pronounced judgment. If our Jesus, if we have no room in our view of Jesus for him pronouncing judgment, then we don't have the true Jesus. He pronounces judgment on the temple and on Israel for their rejection and their fruitlessness, as we're going to see in chapter 13. So here it is. Jesus is just as glorified in his judgment as he is in his salvation. And we, we need to emphasize Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our salvation. But the other side of that coin is he also came and pronounced judgment on those who rejected him. And in fact, we know there will come a final judgment. And he will be perfectly just and justified to once again pronounce judgment on those who have rejected him and those who have been fruitless. Behold your king. Let's pray. Father, um, it's amazing to me that in almost half of the Gospel of Mark now focuses on the last seven days of Jesus' earthly life. In fact, most of it is the last several days. The, the, the conscription, the, the compressing of, of this account highlights the importance of it. And Father, we know that you are a God of infinite love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. But you are also a God of infinite holiness and justice. And you're also a God of judgment. And you are just as glorified in your declaration of judgment as you are when you save. Father, pray that as we worship Jesus, as we follow Jesus, we would follow all of who Jesus is. Not just one part of Jesus. But he's the Lord of judgment. And Father, as we look at things going on in our world and that has really been going on since your church was birthed, the injustices, the martyrs, Lord, one day you will bring all of that to justice and you will judge and you will be glorified in your judgment. Lord, we thank you that um, all of the injustice, all of the evil in our world will one day be paid for. If not in this life, certainly in the next. May we too glorify you in your judgment just as much as we do in your salvation. We thank you. And it's the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the judge of all the universe. It's in his